the Counterculture Hour with host V. Vale. Produced by Marion Wallace for Research TV. Our guest today, Penny Rimbaud. Part two. You said something earlier that that I am still contemplating. First, you attack the notion of progress, mm-hmm. which I'm sympathetic with because it's often tied to technology, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure how much we want to get into how technolo- technology brings about so-called progress in society, the world, whatever you want to put it. There was an idea that ideas improve and and our language improves and i'm not sure if it does or not uh i would like to think that because of the incredible knowledge brought to many low-income people through the internet that it's possible to have a much bigger factual picture of how the world is all interdependent and how it works for example um I th- I think there I think there's some website that tracks sheer numbers of how much of the land of how the all the land in the world is used and who owns most of this land and this could possibly bring about some reform or reframing of our future in which more land is more equitably distributed as far as its distribution of its resources to more people and and less of the one percent. Well, I mean, I, it, it's, it's an area I don't want to get particularly engaged. I mean, I don't agree. I mean, I don't believe that information or facts, you know, give rise to action, you know, necessarily. You know, I mean, and I don't, you know. Um, <sighs> And I certainly don't believe that, you know, that uh, some, you know, impoverished person sitting in an impoverished home, A, I don't believe that many of them have got access to those facts. You know, certainly the average citizen of Africa or India have not got internet access. You know, we like to assume that the world's sort of being governed by this sort of great... Um, information service well it quite simply is not you know i mean over three quarters of the world do not have access to the internet you know so it's i mean it certainly means that the western powers are more able to manipulate that the people within their power i you know in 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 the western democracies so-called you know large numbers of people have internet so therefore it is a a useful tool both for the dissenters and for the the power mongers and I would hazard that it's a greater tool for the power mongers than it is for the dissenters yes okay so you can let people know there's going to be a this that or the other uh, you can give them all sorts of information about this that and the other but that will always be countered by and overpowered by the fact that you know I think it's 97 percent um, of men are active. Uh, I think that was the percentage ha- ha- have been active within on pornographic sites. Well, I mean that's appalling, really. I think that was the percentage. It was certainly between eighty and ninety percent of all men are, you know, are permanently active. 
in I don't, and I don't know whether that was in America and Britain or just in Britain. You know, so I don't really hold with all that, and it's not a subject I particularly want to talk about. What um, the internet? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a you know, it's what you, what any individual makes of it. Um, I don't think it has the powers that we like to imagine. I mean, just as uh, one knows the, the the absolute corrupted nature of so much of the material on it, you know that the secret services are spending massive fortunes on making sure that anything that comes up will be countered in one way or another, if not disrupted in some way or another. You can't trust anything whatsoever on it because there is no authentication um, on any of it. So you might be thinking you're looking at a legitimate uh, site when you're not looking at a legitimate site and there is no way of knowing, etc., etc., etc. And I mean, it is so um, florid. I can't think of a better word to use. That I mean, it does. It it is no actually of no interest whatsoever to me. I mean, information of the internet is always pornographic in my my sense. Whether it's about Jean Paul Sartre or how big a you know how big the average Afri- uh, Russian tit is, it makes no difference to me. It's all pornographic. Um, you know, I like books and I like or I like dialogue. You know, that's where I get my information from because I can trust it. I I want some form of authentic uh, authentication uh, before I will engage in any form of information. I mean, I do use the internet for looking up certain things. What was the name of that cafe I went to in Paris? Because I want to write about that cafe I went to in Paris, and it's very quick for that. You know, the Google Google search is useful in that sense. But I, my brother once gave me very, very good advice about the thesaurus. Never use a word you don't know. Hmm. Um, although it might... I mean, not immediately, anyway. Uh, and I think it's the same, you know, that, that what comes out of one's head or through dialogue, you know, one, one is authenticating simply through the process. Whereas you go to, oh, I didn't know that, is a such common sort of thing with the internet. Well, you still don't actually know it. You've simply got it off the internet. And I think there's a huge danger with that. I mean, I know writers who spend their entire time actually, you know, uh, minimising the page. So, you know, the, the Google's always there. They just need to press the button and up it pops so they can ask the next question. And they'll produce entire volumes you know, based on information coming off of the internet. Um, and they will always be specific. Uh, you can't ask the questions, uh, you know, which normally one knew, well, what do you mean by that? Or could you explain what, why you're using that particular word, which is what, what part of dialogue is about? Um, it's a bit like sort of imagining you can... You can, you know, make a loaf of bread by learning off the in, uh, off the internet, but you're not going to get the smell of it. You're not going to get the sensual nature of, etc., etc. And you're not. Neither are you going to get. It's it's sort of self knowledge. I mean, um, I, I mean, I, do, I I I think we are. We carry everything that we need within us. 
that we actually need. We don't carry what we want within us, but we certainly carry everything that we need. We have all of the intelligence that we need, uh, and we develop that intelligence as we need it. Now, what we might want is another... That's why I don't like academics, because academics want more than they need. You know, they're constantly wanting to find out more but they're not. They don't need to find out more. And that, and 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 one of the things about, I don't like about academia is its lack of poetry. Mm-hmm. Well, because that, so they 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 reject metaphor in favour of so-called fact. Uh, so the pragmatic overpowers the metaphoric, and um, and I think that the internet has enlarged that. You know that increasingly we're moving into a sort of pragmatic universe as opposed to a metaphoric one, or a poetic one, or a poetic one. And I, I, you know, I, I, I believe that in you know, for example, in Nietzsche or in Whitman, one can find everything, or in Shakespeare, one can find everything that one might ever, ever need in all of one's lifetime. Uh, within those few works. I mean, thus spake. One doesn't actually need anything more than that. It's enough. And all the rest is, you know, that sordid elitism. I mean, so much art is not about compassionate um, engagement. It is actually about um, uh, elitism. It's about, well, I knew better. You know, I mean... Pollock went within, he didn't go without, you know, and he didn't go outside. He went increasingly, increasingly deep into himself until he, he, he made what I believe are some of the greatest universal statements ever committed to canvas. Um, had he been looking outside to try and form, you know, create some form of elitist statement, then that could not have happened. <coughs> and so I, th- I really do believe that um, <clears throat> that it's a process of inward looking and not outward looking, and I think what you know the internet has really encouraged a new form of outward looking. I mean, it, one no longer gains information. I mean, in the days when one hadn't got the information available, you had to you know put your raincoat on if it was raining, head off for the bus stop, catch the bus, go to the library. The chances are, when you were halfway down the high street, that you meet an old friend. You forgot, you forget the fact that you were interested in, because actually human beings are more interested than any fact you might be interested in, and so you end up talking about something completely different. So you 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 become the sort of beautiful circuitous flow of life, not this sort of ghastly linear. Thing which knows where it can get its facts. Um, so we're destroying ambiguity. You know, Google will systematically destroy the concept of ambiguity if it's allowed to do so, or if people allow it to do so. Certainly, and already has destroyed the, the sense of ambiguity that any individual is capable of if the first thing they do, oh, hang on, you know, and I mean, I, that sort of loathsome situation when you're in dialogue with someone and out comes the, the iPad or whatever it's called and they tap in the very thing you're talking about. So they say, well, no, actually, uh, Descartes said, mm, you know, and you know, well, f- 
fuck off. You know, I'm talking about my understanding, not a general consensus of understanding. Um, you know, and and to become, uh, we are becoming the aut- automatons that we imitate. You know, and I think that's one of the great dangers of digital technology is that you know the fact that it's on off um ones ones and zeros um which is so different to the analog process which isn't you know i don't diss all uh digital technology but but if we are going to um organize the brain digitally then i think we're stepping into some potentially dangerous ground and I think the on-off, actually, I mean, we certainly there's a um, new form of psychopathic, you know, uh, you know, and I, you know, I think the sociopath is the sort of word that is so often used. Well, it's this sort of idea that you can on-off in terms of sort of human interaction, which means that one can sort of, you know, with no feelings whatsoever, um, record a, you know, violent act on your iPhone and then send it off to someone, you know, is simply a violent act on the iPhone. It, you know, it no longer is a violent act in the street. When there was a... It went viral. Yeah. And when when the, when recent, uh, in, uh, there was a sort of 9-11 in uh, Britain, it was 7-7 or something ridiculous, which was equally a set-up. And anyway... Um, what the, the main news was not this has happened, this is why it's, we think it might have happened, these are the situations. The main part of the news was we need your photographs. Um, it was. That, that's what they were saying all the time, you know, on the news reports. Um, send us your photographs, send us your comments, uh, comments this democratisation so-called of, of events. Um, well, they catch criminals that way. They put out an appeal for everyone who was taking footage or still photos when this crime happened, please send them to us. And they actually have caught a few people. Yeah, but, well, that's irrelevant. What, what it's also doing is everyone is becoming the dispassionate war um, documenter. You know, so <laughs> one no longer actually, you know, someone has their leg blown off. You no longer move to them and help in the way that human beings should i believe interact you know one takes photographs of them people stand back they no longer experience the experience you know the experience is experienced via a technology i mean i remember i was on the staten island ferry last year and as apart from the commuters you know who simply reading their newspapers doing whatever they're doing all of the tourists were taking pictures of liberty as they went past liberty not one of them, and I'm not exaggerating, not one of them was minus their digital uh, camera, you know, or phone, or whatever they were using. They were all taking pictures. So none of them actually saw Liberty at all. All they saw was the, you know, weeny little thing on their picture. Then, So uh, this whole idea that is a sort of once removed from experience, or the twice removed from experience, because f- the first remove is the idea that we are experiencing an experience, ourselves looking at ourselves having an experience. And we've now got this further layer of ourselves only believing that we ourselves are looking at ourselves having an experience. If we can document ourselves 
looking at ourselves, having that experience, etc., etc. You know, and slowly, you know, we move further and further away from the looking glass, um, and you know that there might be positive sides to that. There might not be, but I mean, that's what I see as 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 happening. Which is why I said I wasn't really interested. I mean, I, you know, I can, you know, play the devil's advocate and see that there are possibilities within the internet with, on a much more sort of McLuhan-esque uh, level of, an, you know, this sort of massive pool operating where, um, you know, meanings mix and uh, um, intermix and become some sort of acknowledgement of the flux. I think in the hands of the Descartian thinker, then actually it, it is a very cruel medium. But I have noticed that with young kids, there is a sort of new form of ambiguity developing, a new form, a, a form of fluidity, because that has been their their tool. You know, uh, you know, sort of the the logic and the um, substance of in the Enlightenment has died in them or is dying in them. But I mean, for someone of my own age and for people of my generation and you know, who aren't part of the true revolution, which I think only fairly young kids are a part of, um, then I think all we can do is manufacture a form of cruelty through that information. Well, what is cruelty? It, it's opposite. Compassion? Yeah. yeah. For quite a while, I've been interested in the idea of fighting the increasing encroachment of kind of what I call virtual experience over real experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think it's all, it's very sad when I, I see armies of of people in the streets... And they're all glued. They're walking literally mm, like mm, this, glued mm, to their mm, phone. They're mm, not noticing mm, other humans. Mm, mm, they are alienated mm, from humans mm, that they're sharing the same air molecules with mm-hmm, a few feet away. Mm. I'm not them, though. I'm sure they have their own rationales uh, about more or less ignor- ignoring the genuine environment and people within a few feet of them. Well, I'm sure they have. I mean, I went. I mean, I mean, it saddens me that so many, you know, otherwise nice cafes are now inhabited with people behind screens. You know, they don't have a partner or a you know, partner in dialogue. You know, uh, with them, they have their screens, and that you know. And so, rather than the old bohemian cafes, which were places of great chitter chatter and interaction. Um, are now places of silence, um, and I, I mean, I actually find that silence very oppressive, mm. um, and that silence is mirrored in most flights or most train journeys, um, or and uh, it's not mirrored in 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 bus journeys. That what's what one has then is the chitter chatter of people talking into a cell phone, you know, rather than talking to the person next door to them. Hmm. Um, yes, and I, I mean, I think that's a great loss. Um, whether or not, you know, we, we, we become therefore unable to relate, you know, on, on, within the sort of more human context that 
we of our generation believe has value, I, I don't know. And whether there's something which is being, you know, gen- something authentic is 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 growing in its in it in its wake. I I don't know. I mean, I tend to fe- fear for the in inauthenticity and in in the way I was explaining how you know I have very little respect for academics mm. because of the source you know of, of information for academics you know increasingly becomes you know the internet but you know that is countered by the fact that you know there seems to be a sort of le- strange level of interactive intelligence in very you know much younger kids you know kids who as yet haven't got out of their teens seems to me to be sparkling with intelligence. Well, you know, so that suggests that maybe they are able to operate those technologies and not be um, uh, removed or, you know, uh, alienated um, from their immediate surroundings by them. You know, maybe that is happening and... You know, maybe their minds are more digital. They're, far, they're certainly faster. There's no question of that. You know, the speed with which um, intelligent young people are able to operate their thinking is quite, I think, quite extraordinary when I think of how I was when I was that age. And the breadth also of their thinking is extraordinary. So, it, you know, it is possible. I don't think, it, however, it's possible for, you know, the, the, the Cartesian thinker to operate in that way because they're bound by the I I am therefore and that in itself you know um, corrupts information I used to enjoy reading a whole variety of fiction because you know it seemed like I would become someone else and um, you know, identify with the narrator, the yeah. omniscient narrator, mm-hmm. and look at the world through their eyes mm. in a book. And what, of course, I like about books is that at least you're the person imagining what they look like. And I mean, there there's some imagination yeah, forced but, into yeah, yeah. action mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. reading a book mm-hmm. as opposed to, say, watching a film in which they just show you. Well, even now, I mean, I actually find. Um, just simply black and white film more engaging because actually you know what what you're allowing the imagination to create the colors hmm. if the colors are already there there's nothing to do you know and, and i mean i find one of the things uh, i don't like about and i don't watch movies um very much quite simply because if there's nothing to do and increasingly there isn't because a the, you know so there are so few Movies that engage in dialogue, which seems to me the important theatrical part of of um, any movie. Um, so dialogue engages the mind in in understandings and considerations, all of the, you know intellectual thought and imaginings. You know, likewise, um, uh, a black and white movie is is leaving you to fill in the colours. That's why I like. I mean, I like listening to theatre on the radio because then you're even more engaged in imaginings. You, you know, you're creating your own landscapes to fit the fit the story. You're imagining, you know, how the people look, etc., etc. So you are interactive, and increasingly, it seems to me that 
um, well, certainly Hollywood aims to be non-interactive, except on an exceedingly cheap, sentimental level. Everything's there, and very deliberately uh, designed to create this or that um, effect, in the same way as the advertising world operates. It's quite simply designed to have an effect, not to engage and instruct and to educate. Whereas traditionally, um, you know, sort of culture, be it you know, pictorial or um, literary or musical, in some way sought to instruct. And not in a sort of, you know, um, um, I, the teacher, but quite simply by trying to find new ground. That in itself is, you know, is, an, is a form of instruction. Well, here's a possibility. Like cartography, I mean, they're maps to other ways of thinking you know, deliberately or not, but that's how they seem to represent. And it does seem to me there was a sort of period in time which was probably in Britain slightly earlier than possibly here where that sort of started to not to be um, the cause. Um, I mean, philosophers are rare. Um, The avant-garde has diminished you know, since probably when, the 70s? Um, I don't know. That's when performance art got invented, the word. Yeah, yeah. And conceptual art. And both, as you know, conceptual involved, as they call it, the dematerialization of the art object, in which yeah. it was possible to be an artist just by pronouncing a sentence yeah. or an idea. Yeah. You didn't have to make it. No, no. I no. mean that was enough. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I mean, I'm a huge fan, of course, of the old-fashioned art of the insane, which it then became bourgeoisified to, I suppose, naive art and then outsider art. Yeah, more polite word. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it used to be called art of the insane yeah. back in time, because of that what you mentioned before the psychopath sometimes has a take on real so-called reality or an alternate reality or a surreality and they put it in make it visible to us on their canvas or their drawing or well there's no question that postmodernism is the antithesis to all of that and uh, you know psychopathy and um romanticism um yet you know i mean i would counter that you know the only um real cultural uh, opposition that be- can be given to rampant postmodernism is romanticism you know which is a form of psychopathy <laughs> and and increasingly is regarded as a form of psychopathy i mean the whole idea of the of the romantic passions are regarded as being so distasteful in postmodern society, so out of place as to be psychopathic. Um, so, well, well, you know, the Surrealists—they <coughs> made a big deal in, I guess, starting in the twenties about the notion of mad love, yeah, and about uh, chance and mad love. I mean, Breton wrote about this in his groundbreaking novel Nadja and um, 
that they also you know extolled the idea of automatic writing and drawing mm-hmm. in the absence of moral yeah, yeah. Um, mm. standard mm. you might say mm. or or barrier yeah barrier erection yeah I I think that um, immorality is quite simply the inability of any uh, within the individual immorality is quite simply the inability of the individual to encompass the whole you know because if it, it, i mean I, I and i think that you know that uh, the specific of concentrating uh, attitudes particularly romantic attitudes or sexual attitudes towards a, a specific is actually in itself uh, a form of immorality against you know the greater life force uh, against life itself uh, any form of specific is effectively a heresy against, you know, the totality, against the absolute. Um, and it's something that we all do in one way or another. But I think when it comes into the sort of moral framework, one can only cr- create immoral acts out of disengagement from the, you know, the totality, from the absolute mm-hmm. nature of existence. So... In any defined culture or any culture who's, you know, the, the, the tighter the parameters of, of sort of cultural normality, the greater the acts of immor- immorality that will, 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 will be practiced, you know. And, I mean, there's no question that, um, you know, since the war on terror, you know, which is, <laughs> is not something specific simply to the USA, you know, it's, you know, that we have exactly the same conditions in... Britain currently and most most of the Western Europe you know the European the Western democracies etc etc engaged in the war on terror well the war on terror is simply tightening the parameters of human existence the definitions of of, of behavior uh, and it's and 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 what it is doing is creating new forms of immorality I mean it's getting close to the thought police of 1984. Um, thinking is enough now, you know, so, you know, the existential position has now become criminalized. Well, I think there is technology uh, research projects aimed at telling what you're thinking from, yeah, yeah. you yeah. know, mm-hmm. from some device, mm-hmm. some super camera out mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And I think that I've read about it at least. And uh seems like something to fear. <laughs> I think that one only has to fear if one believes in one's uh, in in any form of substance that one represents some form of substance. For example, you know, so that as, and, and you know, thought is a substance. Um, a sub, the substance of thought is one's own thought. Um, now, uh, if one goes back to metaphor, mm-hmm. ambiguity, all of those those elements, which are you know much more progressive ways of thought, and actually is far less vulnerable to any form of invasion in that sense. Uh, in other words, if one is incomprehensible within the, within the sort of pragmatic world, then one is in a far safer position. Um, and the fact is that most people prefer, because they like the idea of personality and individuality, to imagine that you know they are on stronger ground by you know being very strong advocates for whatever it is they choose to believe, you know, and they will then 
decorate that with, you know, the sort of cosmetic of of appearance, etc., etc. You know, to further that. Uh, well, all the time they're really, you know, leading themselves into danger. You know, and we define our own fate by believing in the substance that we create, and then manufacturing all sorts of googles and nonsenses around that. You know, from how we look to how we present ourselves, etc., etc., etc. So, in terms of, I mean, the thought police can only identify a problem if they, if you have a thought. Um, <laughs> Well, if thought is only the the manufacture of effectively the ego self, which I believe it is, we only have thoughts to um, effectively ornament and increase the ego self. The non-ego self has no thought. There's nothing to think about. There really is not. We simply, we have to think because of the, because of the um, contradiction, the duality of that created through the ego self. I mean, and, and that goes right back to the beginning. We're given a name which isn't ours. <laughs> um, we are given a cultural, religious, ethnic position which is not ours, etc., etc. Um, so really, already we're bedeviled, you know, and most people never question that. They never question their name, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, one of the great liberating things I did was to change my name because I, I gave birth to myself at that point, and that's why I did it. I did not want to carry the weight of the father and the weight of the mother anymore. I was tired of doing it. Why should I represent them? I didn't represent them. I represent myself. I am my own child. You know, and it was a very simple thing to do, and it, it, it really did have a very liberating effect because I was no longer representing the family ratter. Um, I was representing my own family of nil myself. Uh, is that why you chose Penny? Penny is almost considered of no value in currency. Well, I chose Penny actually because my brother used to call me a toilet seat philosopher. My brother was an academic, Oxbridge academic, who studied philosophy, and he regarded me as a sort of bog seat philosopher. And you used to have to pay a penny to go to the toilet. So when I changed my name in sort of respect for my brother's view of me as being a sort of bad philosopher, I um, I named myself Penny. So that was the or- was the origin of Penny, yeah, that it was valueless. And Rambeau, of course, is to continually remind you that poetry can exist. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, that's not entirely the reason, and I wouldn't have thought of that as the reason at the time, but certainly... It's a hard act to follow. So, I mean, it's a great thing to sort of set yourself up that way. I mean, and probably hasn't done me any any favours. But, yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's a grand idea um, to do that. You know, call yourself Nietzsche and see what happens. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have some big problems on the, on the journey. <laughs> At least he died 60 years before your birth, <laughs> Mr. Rambo. And it it is so, it's so weird how sort of a corrupted version of literally the pronunciation known as Rambo birthed itself in the seventies with Sylvester Stallone. Well, it was. I think it was slightly after I had changed my name, and you know because 
in the Rambo had only one Rambo. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, and I wasn't very long after I changed my name, where, you know, R-A-M-B-O turned up. And so then when I was on air flights and they would they would say, Will Rambo and Mr. Rambo and Jones please, you know, press the button because we were booked in as vegetarians and then there'd be great laughter all around the aeroplane and suddenly it was a sort of another weight to carry, you know. So you you yeah, you're absolutely right. And I've often thought in that sense, would I have called myself Enid Blyton and just have settled for that? Wait, who's that? Oh, she she was the sort of um, kids story writer supreme in Britain in the 50s. And every kid of my generation, you know, in the 40s, 50s and early 60s read Enid Blyton. And she wrote adventure stories for kids, which actually then became very very unfashionable and very attacked by it from from the literary world as being sort of you know like um not offering sufficient guidance or whatever you know <laughs> a bit politically incorrect for some reason i can't remember quite what the reason was but anyway so i mean i had thought at one time of changing my name to penny blighton but <laughs> in sort of honor of enid but i didn't <laughs> well you know, I s- say change your name and you change your destiny. Oh, yeah. There's no question. Well, it was quite interesting when I did change it because I had a numerologist friend who did um, both... Numbers. Yeah, and did, um, you know, the reading on my original name, hmm. numerological reading on that and on my new name. And actually it was quite shockingly prescriptive. Um more about aspiration because obviously I hadn't had my name very long at that time but certainly Penny started travelling in a very different direction to where Jeremy was travelling it certainly allowed me it was the time at which I sort of took the existential leap and um, it certainly allowed me to make that leap and and live the life that that le- leap offered me and I think that Jeremy would have put in quite a degree of resistance because Jeremy was carrying the weight of the father I propose that now we take things as much as possible 100% into the realm of very dark humor alright and um that doesn't mean we'll succeed. Is that in... why we have got the black hat on here? <laughs> yeah, the black uh, hat. All right, the black hat has appeared. Right. Yeah. Let's centralize and, it. And I was impressed, by the way, speaking of that black hat, is that, I, I mean, it's the theory that we pick clothes that actually do reflect some, what you might call that horrible word, essence, in us. In other words, you could have picked a brown one, but somehow it wouldn't have worked as well since you tend to wear all black as that black one. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the origin of my wearing black, which has absolutely nothing to do with anarchism. It was I was sitting one day, I was wearing a black shirt, but I didn't often wear black shirts. And I had got a black shirt and I was sitting stroking a cat and it was a black cat and all I could see of the cat as I was stroking it, because it was black and my shirt was, was its eyes. And I really liked that. I just thought how beautiful it was. And I wanted to be like the cat. 
So the only way I could be like the cat was to wear all black. So from then on, I wore all black. Um, and it wasn't as a sort of, there is a tradition, I believe, you know, certainly in, in Paris there was, of black shirts representing um, anarchism. And that wasn't my reason. My reason was because I wanted to look like a cat. I don't actually think that clothing or things net naturally reflect essence. One has to have a self-conscious idea to do that. I think it much more reflects the theatre of life that one is playing, you know, and I certainly, that's how I feel. I mean, I um, adopted a sort of particular theatrical appearance, a new one about a year or so ago, which was much more inclined towards sort of New York taxi driver which did incorporate this hat, which a New York taxi driver certainly wouldn't wear. But a New York taxi driver of the 70s, not a modern-day one, um, because it sort of amused me, and I felt like feeling like a New York taxi driver of the 70s. So it hadn't really got anything to do with essence. You know, it was much more to do with theatre, I think. Um, if one is a, uh, unaware person or uh, unaware of you know one's processes it's certainly likely that those things are to happen in other words by effectively a mistake um, um, but no I, I mean I think that you know in the same way makeup is a form of theater um, and is used extensively in the theatre but also it's used extensively particularly by women you know and and most of the women I've asked about makeup have said that you know that it gives them a sense of theatre, a sense of you know almost once removedness from who they are beneath the um, beneath the uh, mask. facade or oh, the mask. Yeah, oh, mask I like that facade. mask mm. better. Yeah, um, and I think that clothing is much the same. I mean, it's it it it, it is. You know the facade that we put over um, our naked bodies, um, and I don't. You know, I wouldn't. You know, the essence is the naked body. The essence is the naked mind, if there's any essence at all, uh, and all else is theatre. Um, you know, so just as ideas are theatre, as we've discussed, you know, previously. You know, I think that. You know, how one manifests as a physical being, in other words, as a dressed physical being, you know, is basically a piece of theatre. Well, I feel that clothes are what I call environment. And I always said, don't try to change man, change environment. No, actually, Bucky Fuller said that because he was trying to, uh, he was aiming for some kind of social change too. He felt that. For example, if you didn't have roads with cars and highways on them, that you would be forced to have a more ecologically friendly train system in which, at least before the Internet, people would almost be forced to dialogue with each other mm -hmm, in person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And But um, that's only part of it. Now, now, you just gave me a thought. There, there, we have a lot to cover in this next time period. Mm -hmm. And um, 
if everything in the world is theater or could be framed and and viewed and experienced as such, then how is Dial House, which I consider one of the great social experiments of the last 40 years, how is that framed as theater because it seems real to me like you're it seems like you're more in touch with real life than many people ever are well i mean i think uh part of what i hoped or part of the program you know in in the concept of the open house you know was exactly to do away with as much as the theater as one possibly could Mm. uh well one does that immediately by saying that as far as possible this is an unconditional situation by saying it's unconditional you know you're no longer you're, you're not defining the parameters of the theater into which people can enter in entering the door the moment you start sort of you know creating any form of restriction then effectively you are creating a, a stage a platform you know, for people to behave in, in other words, the limitations. You, you're creating a script in the way that theatre requires a script. Um, so that would be my immediate answer, you know, whether or not, you know, and there's been many occasions, or not many, but there's been a few occasions, you know, which theatre has overpowered my the, the, the idea of the unconditional. In other words, you know, there have been personalities who have imposed drama into the situation, which have, you know, um, led to the uh, and the only way one can in, engage in drama, short of completely ignoring it, is to engage in it in some way, and one can only engage in it as a drama. Uh, and we all know the sort of avalanching or snowballing effect of getting involved in drama, you know, that we get drawn into it and then we are no longer ourselves, we are a part of the drama and we will, rather than conforming to our own authentic understandings and beliefs, actually start conforming to the understandings and beliefs that are written into that particular drama. This is how we get psychologically hooked. And those roles. Yes, into role-playing as opposed to, you know, authentically responding mm-hmm. or not responding. Um, and so, I mean, and, that, and that's very pertinent to, you know, most of what we were talking about about earlier, really, you know, the degree to which we move out of the before into ideas of ourselves, you know, be they um, Cartesian or be they any other idea, you know, Buddhistic idea of yourself, life is suffering, etc., etc., all of these definitions which already define the manner in which we are going to behave. In other words, they are conditional. You are, of course... Other people would accuse you of being hyperverbal, yeah, and um, you know, just very conversant in the real world of words, which I always regard as parallel to the so-called real world. Yeah, and just as I consider, you know, friends to lead a parallel existence to mine, mm-hmm. not identical, mm-hmm. and but I would, I think that. Having the social experiment, which I call Dial House, as your la- live laboratory of life, 
and it forces a lot of dealing with nonverbal lessening that the earth can give you. Mm-hmm. And and I suppose to harvest the best of that, you must eventually articulate the various and manifold and complex and detailed little lessons that running an entire farm, building it up, improving mm, mm, it, mm, you know, harvesting the crops, mm, planting mm, the crops. Mm, mm. I mean, there's a lot of real life non non high social status mm, mm, time mm. Uh, or even though if you might eschew the notion of linear time you nevertheless some would argue that you've spent thousands of hours you know in in learning the lessons from the earth and engaging well that's but that i mean i i could only describe that as a you know where people you know sometimes accuse me of living a privileged life well i mean privilege. i but i would agree that uh, i have been privileged and i've been privileged by the earth and i've been privileged by actually doing something which is very very rare nowadays for for western humankind and i've lived on the same piece of earth for nearly half a century and i can watch Every single minute change, you know, from blades of grass to limbs on trees to, you know, the actual movement of Earth, which over 50 years is quite extensive. I mean, the land mass, you know, which is only an acre of land, but obviously it's surrounded by land I know slightly less because I don't, uh, I'm not involved in its husbandry that I, you know, I'm in the immediate land. But, I mean, the shape of it has changed, the colours, the, you know, all the inflections, the meanings, the lessons. And if there's any lesson to be learned, it's about, it is about that exquisite um, and unavoidable change, you know, of the earth, the shapes, why, you know, they're... <laughs> There will be a reason why, you know, one piece of grass will go one colour and another will go another. Where, you know, one is actually living in a very um, um, stable universe in that sense, you know. And that stable universe includes all the things that we call climate change. I mean, people who are very, very concerned about climate change tend to live outside the effects of climate change in the sense they're... They tend to be more urban people who are sort of involved far more in sort of intellectual processes than they are in actual the discovery and the exciting... You know, there are exciting elements about climate change and how do we adapt to this, you know. I mean, and certainly the complete unpredictability of the climate has been something which we've been, for want of a better word, struggling to come to terms with at Dial House, you know, within the sort of, you know, horticultural e- arena... Uh, because it's almost impossible to predict how and when to plant, mm. which has never been the case before. I mean, one makes adjustments, of course, but, um, well, that's an exciting challenge. Um, at the same time, you know, obviously, you know, on a, on, on a more sort of mundane level, one attempts to uh, share that knowledge you know, because in sharing that knowledge, one possibly is 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 creating the political um, atmosphere which is necessary to make any sort of of the sort of large scale adaptions if they're going to be made. And I would probably suggest that they're not. 
uh, going to be made sufficiently to make any real difference. And, and you know, and it does in the end come down to the fact that the only um, real differences can be made within one's own contribution or lack of it to the living earth. Um, but then you're one acre. Well, yeah, but that one acre has, you know, I mean, for example, I mean, one of the things that was part of the, um, you know, the agenda within Crass was the sort of promotion of vegetarianism. Well, you know, that one acre of land where we were able to live and practice that as a sort of life form, um, you know, vegetarianism magnified um, massively under our, you know, uh, uh, information that we handed out, you know, we were able to change the vegetarian movement from being essentially a rather middle class, rather a denialist um, group of intellectuals into a massive street movement where, you know, it became almost, you could almost assume that anyone sort of wearing black and a mohawk was also a vegetarian. And then out of that, you know, um, you now can buy vegetarian food in just about any supermarket. You know, it created a market, and that market, you know, has also expanded as those kids sort of grew up from being, you know, black-clad mohawks into working in the media or into the social services. That affects then went on. Maybe they're working in hospital and they'd say, well, hey, well, this diet's not very good. Why don't... Or they're working in the media where they say, no, 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 no. You know, why don't we do a film about vegetarianism, etc., etc." You know, so that one acre has produced thousands, if not millions of acres of possibility. And, you know, and that's, that's the cultural effect. Now, had we sought you know, in a cynical and contrived way to have that effect, then I would say that we probably have, would have had no effect whatsoever. Mm. The simple fact is that we were living the very truth uh, and failing some quite often within that very, very truth to um, be the unconditional nature of existence. And obviously there's a problem there when you say, well, you know, if we're living unconditionally, why are we all getting into a van driving off to London to do a performance? Uh, isn't that a little bit unnatural? Because certainly prior to that, you know, with Exit, who, which was our earlier band, which was far more radical than crass, I mean, we didn't decide we'd do something, we just did it. Um, you know, it was a far more open field thing on every single level. Anyone could be in it. There wasn't a specific band. There wasn't a specific program. There was absolutely no reason for doing it, except that we did it. So it was closer to the activities that we were involved in in the house than Crass was, which was a much more organised thing. And it's no surprise to me that Crass was the most publicly taken on thing because it in some way you know fitted more within the consensual picture of how you ought to behave you're a band and you do this and we were able to subvert that and very very effectively you know we were able to subvert the whole sort of uh, commercial process of the music industry subvert all of the messages of consensual uh, society you know like you know from pacifism to vegetarianism to feminism etc 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 
but we were not doing it self-consciously. I mean, we were a group of people living together, realizing that um, an awful lot of feminist ideology was an important thing to incorporate into our everyday activity. Well, part of our everyday activity happened to be being a group of musicians meet or band members, whatever you want to call them, meeting up in a rehearsal room. So we weren't doing it because we wanted to promote feminism. We were doing it because we wanted to exist and coexist as a, as, as a body of respectful people. If you're attempting to create an unconditional situation, then you can't be laying conditions down. In, 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 and, and, and ultimately, you, you'd have to go back to everything we've been talking about previously you know, you would actually all have to be existing in the before, which, you know, is clearly, as yet, I haven't found a way of doing that. Although with the people who I'm closest to, you know, I sort of feel that, you know, very distinctly with G, for example, because we lived together for so long, I think we are to quite a large degree able to exist in that sense of beforeness. In other words, you know, all of the sort of conventional ways of sort of... Um, establishing and then re-establishing or confirming relationship become unnecessary. Uh, you know, in, in more conventional language, we've moved into the realm of trust, which has no questions, because questions are a way of confinement, a uh, form of confinement. You know, sometimes, you know, in, in, I mean, intellectual and self-questioning is an important confinement because what one's doing is defining what it is which confines one, so uh, then one is then in a position to be able to remove the confinement. You know, so that's important. But to, to impose that on someone else is either manipulative or disempowering or whatever, is it, schematic. I had a thought. Your, your language confines your identity. Yeah. And it's your duty to constantly be questioning yes. that and be skeptical. Yeah. I mean, I love yeah. the yeah. early Greek skeptics mm. yeah. for precisely that yes. reason. No, absolutely. You know, we're coming to the end <laughs> of this segment. Well, we've done and well. No, we've tried to... I really was hoping to condense all the inspirations you could give humans on how to be creative how to be independent, how to try to avoid day jobs and working for mm. others, how to also not only manifest all the potential you were born with, but even discover potentials you didn't even know you had. All, all right. of that is really I've got an important. immediate answer to that. And then look only to yourself, the self you will never know. And I'll repeat that. Look only to yourself the self you will never know, then you will be in the position to do all of the things that you just wanted me to give a picture on. And I can't say, I mean, that would be the absolute message. Well, thank you very much, Penny Rambo. Well, thank you very much indeed also. I enjoy talking with you. <laughs>